Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. My name is Dr. Heidi Forbesista, and today I am so delighted to introduce you a dear friend of mine. Her name is Pamela Paquin, and she is the founder of PeaceFur and has an incredible story that has led her to this lifestyle, natural lifestyle in high heels is the best way to describe her of living on a farm and raising her daughter. Welcome, Pamela. Thank you so much, Heidi. It's so wonderful to be back with you. So we met over 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. no, definitely over 10 years ago, probably 15 years ago, back in Sweden. And a lot of things have have passed since then. Let's start a little bit with PeaceFur, because PeaceFur is an Mm -hmm. incredible project in its own. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, PeaceFur was a direct result of my living in Denmark at the time when I met you. Just understanding the fur industry and that 30 million mink a year were being raised in cages and slaughtered over there. We don't have that fur culture here, certainly not on the East Coast in Boston, where we both come from. And so I was really uncomfortable with that. And when I returned to the U.S. in 2010, as people in the Northeast know, it's just carnage on our roadsides. And I thought, well, why can't we use that fur and then not have to cage other animals? And uh, as a mom, a single mom of a small child, my corporate lifestyle had to shift. My career had to shift drastically to be able to raise her. But I wanted to continue to do work that not only saved lives, but it was also good for the earth. And having a background in farming, I was a bit brave about confronting death and um, making the best of it, honoring animals. And so I started learning about how to process fur from animals that died in the roads and build up a, uh, an operational pipeline and then learn to sew from an old, oh gosh, what like a cobbler in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. And Peace Fur was born and then boom, it hit and took off and the international media attention was just overwhelming. And at that point, I was moving to Southbridge, Massachusetts, where I set up a factory. It's an old mill town, bought a house, bought the farm, and set up my company. And we have been proceeding ever since, trying to understand the industry, walk a middle road, and involve both animal activists and the fur industry actively in redefining how we source fur. I love that. And I'm one of the lucky recipients of one of your beautiful pieces that just uh, every time I wear it, I love the fact that it comes with a story and you understand that you're extending the spirit and life of an animal that died from whatever circumstances, but it wasn't because it was raised uh, purely for the, the purpose of being a fur. So I think there's so much to the story behind it, but there's such beautiful pieces and you have such a, a wonderful way of bringing them to the world and sharing them so that they uh, live on in, in a different way. Thank you so much for that work. It's an honor. It's an honor to, to be able to do it. And it took a lot of courage. I don't know about you, but I know when I was a new mom, life was very precious and death was a, a scary thing for me. You're always worried about your child and are they going to be able to live? Are you doing enough? And uh, so, but you become very powerful. And it's a sense of grace that comes with honor. It's like a a transition from the life that we have here to whatever comes after and that transition just the way birth is. So it's like a birthing out of this life and into whatever's next. And motherhood has allowed me to do it, really. It gave me the courage 
And going into the motherhood piece. Now, this is for those folks that are listening. I want you to understand the incredible tenacity, strength, and wherewithal that this woman has been through in order to get to where she is now. We always think of living abroad and marrying your sort of shining prince from some other foreign land as something very glamorous and wonderful. And you were a very accomplished you know, businesswoman prior to that. And then you married your Danish prince. And that kind of fell apart. When we first met, it was before the falling apart. And uh, you tell a little bit about that story and how that sort of led to where you are now, but also how that formulated your story. Sure. Well, I certainly always was intrigued with kind of the, the dual nature or the multi peace nature of, of any one of us. We're, we're never just one definition of ourselves. And that's what led me to look to do my studies abroad. I did my master's in Spain and Austria, which is where I met my now ex-husband, the father of my daughter. And it was wonderful. I still think that the best part of my life and the safest I ever was, was in this group of 70 people from 35 different countries, all of whom had experienced uh, some sort of voracious trauma in their home country and and had dedicated their lives after that to keeping peace and working on conflict resolution. So it was amazing and yes, beyond my own American identity, which was really appealing to me. I never wanted to be boxed in. And I saw that national boundaries were imaginary and I was willing to travel. It was exciting for me. I loved living in Europe and I think that it wasn't until we actually moved to Copenhagen that things started getting really difficult for me. I never saw myself as Danish or wanting to be Danish. I was an American living abroad, whichever country I was in. And the Danes, you know, unbeknownst to us, because they're talked about as the happiest people on earth or that they're very family friendly because of all the different social policies and structures they have in place. But the undercurrent that we don't know about is something that you may be familiar with having come and uh, married a Swede is that whole concept of law, which is don't think you're better than anyone else. Don't be different than anyone else, which is completely opposite of what happens in the United States when you're building <laughs> your identity. So it was just, but I had, I didn't know this existed, but it's also a kind of a wonderful structural underpinning for the Danes in terms of how they manage their social approach to solving problems. And I was torn in it, but I, I was great. I rebuilt my work over there and it was even more exciting than what I've been doing in the US. And I think that really what it comes down to is that I just wasn't interested in trying to fit in and that was a problem. And uh, so I was uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable for the family that I had become a part of for my relationship. And I think that my my husband didn't, he was comfortable. He was doing well in Denmark with his career and he didn't want to move away from that. And for me, it had been a pit stop, you know, mm. maybe a decade long pit stop, but it was a pit stop. I wasn't interested in growing old in Denmark. And then I got pregnant, which I wanted desperately. I had waited till I was 34, which so many of us who kind of search for our own careers, our own paths that we we take our time and try to tick all the boxes to make sure that we're stable and steady when we take that big plunge into becoming a parent. And it all fell apart immediately after my daughter was born. And uh, she was four months old when he told me he was leaving. 
and the, the bottom fell out at that point. And then the big concern, of course, when you're having a, an international marriage and you're not in your own country with your own people is that you're immediately isolated. Even with good friends, it's, it's a different thing altogether. And how do you get out? How do you get out and how do you get out with your child? Because I didn't have citizenship. I had a visa that was dependent upon my marriage status. And so when the money was cut off and the divorce papers were going to be filed, I had six months essentially hanging over me. And I think I had to make about a $100,000 salary in any job that I held. And if I lost it, if I got cancer, <laughs> whatever, and I wasn't working and making that money, I had six months and then I would be kicked out. And with the 50-50 custody, I could lose Naya because he could decide to keep her there. So my calculation became, okay, I need to get her out now before he attaches to her any further so that I can keep her. Because if I stay any longer, he might fall more in love with her and then try to keep her and then I'll get kicked out or I'll get stuck here. Mm -hmm. And so we left and uh, I managed to get him to sign a piece of paper saying that we could go on vacation out of the country. And then I had to wait for a year because within that year afterward of my exit with Naya, he could have filed the Hague Convention for Child Abduction and she would have been forced to have gone back to Denmark. So that year was really hard as a new mom alone in 2010, post-economic crash, applying for dozens of jobs and not getting one. I mean, consultants and business people were a dime a dozen at that point. And I've been away for a decade from my business networks and contacts. So I hadn't had the close relationships to the people in the US working with them that I had had in Europe. But I, my citizenship, I had to go back to the US because that was the only place where I knew both she and I couldn't get kicked out of. Mm -hmm. And um yeah, I mean, I, I talked to you about that when it was happening and many people, but the story in particular is one that I have really wanted to share and have with friends and people that I can just because you don't realize those things when you're in love. You don't think about it when you look at a place like Denmark or Europe, even compared to the United States policies, it's so much better in terms of family leave, in terms of healthcare. All of that just is so very appealing, but the the legal risks of being kicked out, of having your right to live and work being based on your marriage is very frightening. And I just didn't take stock of that fully. Absolutely. I, I moved. There's so many, I mean, I've heard that story, or not exactly that story, but similar variations of that story in so many regards in different places that I've lived. And certainly, I mean, I spent the longest period in Sweden and you know, had other friends that were from different other countries, not just US, but that they got divorced and then had to stay, yeah. but had to figure out how to make it work so that they could be with their kids because they couldn't take their kids with them. But it goes the say the other way as well, for which we have to keep in mind, you know, you yes. marry an American and you get divorced and want to leave, all of a sudden, everything changes. I mean, you still get your you can still keep your green card, I guess, or whatever it is. You're, you know, they're not going to take away your citizenship, but you mm. can't take your kid with you. Right. So it's... Yeah, any boundary, um, as I said, it's even state to state in the United States. I've seen that many times also. Yeah. It's something that we, we often take for granted. And like you were saying, when you're caught up in the middle of it and you're in love, it just, you, you can't imagine anything that could go wrong. And it's, 
you know, it's a contract like any other contract. Building a business together with a partner, you got to have an exit strategy, and yes, that, uh, before you even start, and it you don't it's yes. a, the ugly part of the conversation that you don't want to have. But it yeah. is important to think about those things when you're going into a cross national marriage. Yes. But you're, you guys are friends again, and in the long run, it seems like if it's, it's worked out for you and you have this amazing daughter. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have an amazing daughter. And I, I mean, that was part of the marriage, right? So the inspiration was all the beautiful things that I benefited from by knowing and loving people from another place. My daughter, that is her essential makeup. She is of that place also. She is of that and of me. And how wide that casts her horizons and her potential and possibilities, not only from a passport perspective and where she can live and work and be educated and so on, but just to understand fundamentally that there's a different perspective on how to live life. That's what I wanted to gift my child and in choosing an international partner. And I mean, I guess it didn't really matter for me, Dane. I, he was just awfully sensible and, and lovely. So <laughs> I wanted her to have access to the things that created that kind of a person. And it was very different in terms of a, a type of masculine presentation than what I was used to in the United States, you know, kind of khakis and plaid or it was, um, yeah, a European version. And it was very intriguing. <laughs> but um, I think that the kind of to, to circle back to one of the points you were just making is in thinking about it in advance the thing that I've always said to everybody who enters into a relationship like this now is never move closer to their circle than to yours. Because if something goes wrong, you need to be able to access your circle. I and something will always go wrong. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I <laughs> not think just, not divorce, but like you get sick or yeah, or that you lose a job or whatever it is. Like you need to have a marriage and in, in my understanding now, and this is something I didn't appreciate when I was younger, is, is that it's not just the couple, it's the circle surrounding the couple. And whatever the circle's beliefs are, those are the beliefs that will play out when there's conflict between the married couple. And so you need to surround yourself with a circle of people who can support you through those conflicts. Yes. And, and to that point, I think one of the things that I found in my own cross national relationship is that we thrive the best. We are in our best when we are in neutral territory. And so that uh, network that you talk about, it tends to be other expats. It tends yes. to be that community of other people that totally get what you're going through. They get the need to be your chosen family. They get the need yeah. to be that support system and what it's like to be totally alone and you know, and the need to gather, but also the need to connect to your family and whatever means it takes to to make that happen. And I think that that's something that's really important in that conversation when you, or in that sort of growing of a, as a love refugee in whatever regard, that you recognize where you're at your best with your partner. Yeah, we lived in Scotland for three or four years prior to moving to Denmark, and that was where we got married, and that was neutral territory for us, as it wasn't the United States, it wasn't Denmark, and, and we thrived there, really. It was, it was wonderful. It was very exciting. And the only reason we moved to Denmark was because there was an assumption that he would do better building his career in his first language. And I was willing to go there because I was an international business consultant, and I figured I'd be fine there also. The, the challenge was is that I think, and this is to your point about the neutral ground, people in their home place 
have an expectation that you will move towards them over time. When you're in a neutral place where neither of you are from, the people in that place, say for us, Scotland, they didn't expect us to become Scottish because we were American and Danish. They knew that we were expats living in their country and that expectation wasn't there. But as soon as we moved to Denmark, there was an expectation that I take Danish classes, that I start working, you know, in the country, you know, getting pregnant and having a baby. How could I travel with a breastfeeding infant doing my global work? I had to start looking at jobs locally. And fundamentally, that's not who I was. I wasn't somebody who was interested in working at a job down the street. I wanted to be on planes flying around working in a multinational setting. So, yeah, I think that's really important. That that neutral territory is really critical. And it, it goes against kind of what I said earlier, being close to your circle. I mean, that perspective that I hold is a very defensive one and one that comes from that horror of that year of concern about Naya being taken from me because of the Hague Convention. Once a child is born in a country, that's their country of residence. And that's where they have to stay if both if the parents can't agree. And that was terrifying. And there are thousands of people who live without their children as a result of that law. Yeah. Um, so finding the balance between the two, I think is hard. As I said, there are people who do live in the third country and, and you have to, how, how would I say this? The, you have to work towards the best with a mind of, like you said, plan B. What is plan B? And that balance is so, so hard because with your partner, you won't get very far if you're constantly having to say, well, if, are you going to leave me and do I need to now initiate plan B? It's um, <laughs> not a sure. very fun place to live with your partner. <laughs> no, but that's why it's good to have the conversation before, you know, you sort of lay it out like, okay, if this doesn't yeah. work out, what's going to happen? And you sort of look at it as a, you know, a business transaction in the very beginning. And then, okay, that's decided, you know, maybe we need to revisit. It's just like, you know, right now we're all dealing with trying to have those conversations about, you know, end of life and what, just in case, what happens if someone gets sick and, you know, within a week is gone? Like, have you had those conversations? And so it's those ugly, or not ugly, but uncomfortable conversations that you got to have in the beginning. And and I think in the end, it makes you stronger and more confident in the fact that you've been able to communicate with your partner and, and have that conversation. But it, it's not yes. a fun conversation to have, that's for sure. <laughs> no, and it's not one that I had, which was interesting. I really didn't have that conversation. And I think it was an arrogance on my part because I had succeeded in life prior to that and didn't think that I would ever stumble, didn't think that I wouldn't be able to handle exposure to a risk. And, and that was the thing about having a baby, like that changed everything because it wasn't just changing my responsibilities and my priorities. It also changed my capacity to work. Absolutely. And that, that and, yeah. I you didn't expect. Yeah. And so you share a little bit about, cause you also had really interesting sort of financial experience during that as well. Sort of the implications of that journey, which is a side that we also generally don't have that conversation. And it's a very vital one. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, when I was in Denmark, I had money saved and I put that as the deposit down on my Danish house and it was wonderful. But then all of a sudden I wasn't able to be in Denmark anymore and I was leaving, but that was the financial crash. I think we bought the house in 2007, right before the market crashed. And then it crashed and, and then my marriage fell apart and then I had to leave. 
And I couldn't get that money back because, of course, the value of the house had gone down. And so I came back to the U.S., as I've described, and couldn't find a job. I mean, I literally, it's like a very well-educated, globe-trotting woman was in the SNAP office looking for food stamps. I remember getting to the point where I didn't have a place to sleep that night. And I was literally in the office asking that, you know, in line to look for shelter. And my aunt called me and was like, oh, hey, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm in line looking for a place where I can stay tonight. And, you know, within 15 minutes, my mother and she had organized an apartment and gotten me a place to be. But that sense of pride, the utter failure that I felt and shame of not being able to take care of myself was hindering my ability to, to keep myself safe and my baby. And obviously I had the wherewithal to go to the, I don't know what they're called, the, the office where you get food stamps, public assistance or whatever it is. But I was so incredibly ashamed of that. And then also calculating the salary that I needed to make in order to even afford childcare, which was you know a, a second mortgage, essentially a second income. It was 1200 a month, I think at that point. And that was inexpensive. And people saying, well, why don't you just get a waitressing job at night? And I was like, who's going to watch the baby? <laughs> who's going to watch the baby? And people, I, I came across a few people who were like, you really, you really need to just get a job. And then there were also other people who were like, why don't you just date somebody? Just go find a man and you know, get into another relationship. And it was like, yeah, because I did a good job judging the first one. <laughs> like, do I, <laughs> do I really want to put myself back into that cycle again and be insecure again? And also be reliant upon another person financially. That made me very nervous. And so the years following that, fortunately, my mom was amazing. And eventually we managed to sell the house in the winter of 2014. And I bought my farm in 2015, just as Peace Fur was starting to explode. And the interesting thing was that I still didn't have a financial model for how to be a mom and a business owner. You know, the fur industry and the fashion industry by its nature is of and in the city in terms of sales. And so how was I, you know, I was going in and out of the city and I was trying to line up people to watch Naya so that I could go do my job during the sales season. And it was, it was madness. And I knew nothing. I mean, I was, it was a new business and I was doing well at it, but I still, there was so much I didn't know about production, about online sales and marketing. I was, you know, at this incredibly high learning edge all the way through those first years, never mind knowing how to skin and sew and set up an operational kind of pipeline for the product. And it was just really intense. And, and the farm was great because it was my, it was the way that somebody like me who's so driven could manage to stay sane, staying in one place over essentially, you know, a decade or two. So I'm really grateful for like my chickens because it's like this little soap opera that just travels around the property all day. <laughs> and as I'm working or mothering, I can like just be entertained by it or the horses and getting out and riding, freeing myself and feeling that power, the experiential power of riding a horse for me is very powerful. And I really love the life that I'm living and the childhood that I'm providing for my daughter, even if it's not so close to where I grew up. I'm in Massachusetts, which is great. And um, yeah, I just, I think that the financial aspect of it, you get into some pretty dark days when somebody, when you're a professional, when you're successful, when you've succeeded so often in life, when all of a sudden you can't make things work, the despair involved in that is bleak. It's, it's very dark. And the shame that you feel 
for needing help. And so I think maybe two or three times before finally getting things rolling that I needed public assistance and how grateful I was in those times for that. I remember those moments of giving Naya food and I I tear up thinking about it, but just having to convince myself not to pull it out of her mouth. I was so hungry myself. And people here are living that, you know, I am not a unique story. This is the reality for many, many people in our country and all over the world. And it's made me very acutely aware of the responsibility that I have moving forward as I've gotten back on my feet to take care of all of us, because none of us are immune from that reality. I thought I was immune. You know, I did everything right. I got the education. I waited. I got the career. I found a sensible person to marry. And I never thought that I would encounter such poverty. It was shocking. Every time I hear your story, I'm sort of in an awe. And so it makes me so appreciate you and and also just be grateful for what I have. It, it just gives me a moment of pause. But what also really impresses me is what you have been able to pass on to Naya in terms of self-reliance and understanding how to start her own business. You've integrated that into everything that you have done. When I visited the farm, it was everything was really a shared experience in terms of teaching her how to be an entrepreneur and things that you can do in order to survive and to thrive. And that's a wonderful thing about a farm, of course, but there's yes. so many different elements to it. And you've even expanded the farm to be able to create a wig mom and a teepee that you use for Airbnb. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that is so cool. Yeah, that's two different things. So that is really me circling back to my first career where I did kind of corporate executive retreats in in wilderness or on, on farms in Europe. And so I'd take people to the desert in Oman or a farm in, in Scotland or an island in the middle of the Swedish archipelago because I found that people were most in tune with what they needed to think about and learn in those places. And animals actually, very large animals, tend to give that direct feedback. And because you're under threat physically from a half-ton animal, you listen. <laughs> you know, and that, that's a great learning tool for people who are facilitating learning journeys, which is what I was doing with these corporate teams. And so in setting up my farm, I had never expected to do this. I had a teepee from Denmark and I put it up in the garden for us to camp in. And a friend from York in England said, you need to Airbnb that. What is Airbnb? But then I looked into it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is wonderful. And again, being stuck in one place, I had people coming to me instead of because I couldn't travel. And then it developed into how do I create a space for people to have that same experience that I was creating in the corporate retreats. And and then it became an income so that I could send my daughter to this exceptional private school because it it took off. I have all these hipsters coming out of the cities like I was in my 20s trying to get away, be with animals, be in nature. And I built the forest baths and the sauna. And it's like this little farmy spa experience. And I'm booked constantly and it's amazing. And I'm so grateful because again, it connects me to the outer world, but it also allows me to gift people the beauty of the place that I've created here, all the, all the blessings that we have from the animals and being on the top of a hill and seeing the sunset and the sounds of the peepers. And so many people don't have access to that. 
and aspire to it someday, but maybe aren't in the point or position in their lives where they can get it, that they can come here. It makes me very happy. So yeah, that was unexpected. I didn't expect it, but I, I love what I do. And it allows me to, to continue to do the work that I was so good at in my first career. Well, I mean, you were just like the queen of reinvention. You, it, it always amazes <laughs> me the things that you come up with, and and each one of them is brilliant. And I know it has not been an easy path for you, but you are just a, you are an amazing woman. And running with the wolves is definitely mm. uh, <laughs> the way that you that, you live and thrive. That was an inspirational book for me. That one, and I think my mom gave me the Running with the Wolves and the Mists of Avalon, which is like the King Arthur story turned on its head, told from a woman's perspective. Very empowering as a young woman. Very empowering. And uh, I love what I do. And, and as we talked about when you came and visited on the farm, you're right. Naya doesn't have an allowance. She has some businesses. She sells the eggs. She makes products. What do people need? What's the need in the market? You've got a captive audience here from the people who come. So what do they need? And let's make that. And then you can, she can make it and she makes it. And just making something that people buy is incredible. Such an exciting thing to experience that you make something and people want to give you money for it. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah, there's definitely a wonderful power to that. And she is, she's going to thrive because of it, or she is thriving because of it. She's an amazing young woman. And uh, kudos to you for bringing up such a fabulous young woman. And I look forward to seeing what she ends up doing. That's going to be amazing. (laughs) That is going to be amazing. I want to circle back a little bit to Peace Fur, because there was some interesting stuff that happened there that we didn't touch on. But I know that at one point, even when you were first launching, you had some issues with animal activists that really Mm -hmm. were against what you were doing. And Mm -hmm. I think it's important to, to sort of just touch on that because, you know, Fur is a, t- a sensitive topic for some people. Mm. And I think what you're doing is amazing. And so can you talk a little bit about how that experience, how that played out and how now they're sort of a, a partner, if you will. I mean, not fully a partner, but that yeah. you, you have yeah. more of a, a peaceful relationship with them. I would say initially that they, I was an unknown. I mean, I think that was part of it, both from the fur industry and the animal activist perspective. They didn't know if I was authentic or not. You know, they had no idea if I was telling the truth, if I was making it up. Was I just a grifter? Who was I? And what was I actually intending to do with this? But fur, as it turns out, really, it's just a symbol of death. You know, the fur is essentially and critically from a being that has passed. And what is our relationship with death? And it's very interesting because, of course, we have, for the majority of the Americans, I think it's 90% of us eat meat. And so that's an animal. And why are we more comfortable with that? And how did that happen? What was the process by which we became comfortable with consuming meat? Leather, of course, is another thing. And and you, you're in California where they've just banned the sales of new fur products. And that's very interesting with the exceptions, of course, I think of like religious and indigenous products. Hmm. And so there, there are exceptions to the California rule. And so really the conversation I think is around what is our awareness of the consumption or the impact of our consumption? And where did that thing that we're consuming come from? And that awareness of this kind of the systems that produce and then reproduce. And so we're a lot more savvy about that now from a systems perspective as a population. People are becoming aware of the cradle to cradle element of products 
as an example that everything that we consume comes from somewhere else and has been rebuilt from something that came before it. So a long conversation isn't always possible. What I try to do is take examples from our daily life. If we love animals, maybe we have a rescued a dog or a cat and it's and then we look at okay, so where does their food come from? The animal protein that they're eating, that's from death. Or we look at our expanding knowledge of the fact that plants have relationships with one another and even sensory organs and and responses to being attacked. And, you know, we may not want to recognize that because we're uncomfortable thinking about, you know, that eating lettuce is having an impact on a lettuce plant. It does. It's, they've quantified that scientifically. And so what, then where does that leave us? So what, we're going to breathe air, you know? <laughs> and the answer is, of course, no. So then the question is, so then what do we want to do? How do we want to consume in order to be compassionate consumers? And you see things like in the food industry with the production of meat that they're beginning to realize that grazing herbivores are actually a critical part of healthy ecosystems that even if we none of us ate meat, the impact of not having herbivores on the landscape would be detrimental to the quality of those ecosystems. And so then being omnivores, carnivores that we are, how do we consume some meat in a conscientious manner and allow those lives to be lived conscientiously by the herbivores and the death to be compassionate so that we're living within the means of the system. And it becomes less about the individual and more about the system itself. So those conversations are happening, not just with Peace Fur, but across the spectrum, not only of the fashion industry, but of course, every other industry as well. It's a well-timed product release, essentially. I'm not the only person feeling this way. And Peace Fur came out of that common experiential learning that we're all having about products. Well, and I think right now in particular, it's very poignant. I mean, you see people who normally are, you know, live at restaurants and have never, you know, haven't cooked a meal in years and they're pulling out their cookbook and they're buying their flour and they're trying to figure out, you know, what's locally sourced because everything else is hard to get. And people are really starting to be a little bit more conscientious about, you know, what they're consuming, but also, you know, what they're putting into their bodies, you know, what, where do you get your strength from? What, you know, what is absolutely essential? And that whole question of balance is having a reset. And I think that your work feeds into that both from the farm perspective as well as the peace for perspective. And I just, I really want to honor that. I think you're doing an amazing job and I appreciate your efforts to help people recognize and really experience what balance can feel like. Yeah. The second part of my farming is being a part of our agricultural commission and working in a region that's rural, but also a bit impoverished with this former mill town. And it's kind of coming back from the the crash when the big factory left and getting nutrients into people. So yes, there are SNAP offices and yes, there are food stamps, but those are mostly processed foods that are being eaten at the moment. And so how we're working as farmers, you know, together in networks to build up access to local healthy food for everybody, not just for people with the means to buy to buy it. And that is really exciting. And not only exciting from the perspective of getting those healthy foods to the people who eat them, but also what that does for the farmers here. Yeah. And and then what it does for the land. I love it. You know, what is this doing for our farmers and their ability to thrive and not shut down 
but also the, the land itself and the healing of, of the land um, through, what would you call it, kind of compassionate engagement by farmers and humans. It's really exciting. I think that's awesome. And just to tie it back into sort of we're looking at the global perspective and global mobility of individuals, are you finding that there is within your community, the global mobility community of people that maybe are not even supported from the SNAP programs, or do they have access to that? You mean internet people of with international immigrants. backgrounds? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, as far as I understand it, no, if you're, I mean, you have to have in this country anyway, you don't have access to those social programs. And it was the same in Denmark for me. As soon as I, you know, as soon as the divorce was applied for, I was not allowed to receive any benefits in Denmark as a foreigner mm-hmm. whatsoever. So if I had fallen in some way, if I lost my job, like I said, or whatever, I, I could not be supported by the Danish system. And it's the same here for people who aren't allowed to be here. And we have a huge Hispanic population in the town that I live in. And what's really been exciting, actually, is that they a lot of them come from Puerto Rico and are farmers. They grew mm. up on farms. And so how do we celebrate that diversity? You know, there's the all of our COVID-19 town meetings now, the announcements are in Spanish and English. We have a translator. And what a richness of our town to have both languages. It's such an asset. It's such an impoverished position to only speak one language. And when you're a global traveler, you realize that. But to have that asset here in our community is really, really exciting. And I think underappreciated in terms of what that means for our potential as a town of production and making our entrepreneur spirit for what we can bring to the world, because we have two cultures, two languages, two ways of being. That's really exciting for me here to be in this place. But yes, there are absolutely people who who are not allowed access to that. And I know that, for example, in the farming community, there are a lot of people who are undocumented workers, and there have been ice raids just in my area on farmers and then all of a sudden it dries up. And because of the power of the wholesale markets on products like whatever it is, milk or vegetables or strawberries or whatever it is, all of a sudden the farmers can't afford and don't have the labor that they need in order to bring products to market under the market conditions of the wholesale prices and the damage that they has. So again, creating a direct-to-consumer market for the farmers without the middleman driving down the prices is a huge asset and something People are starting to do milkman deliveries now. We're getting, you know, the glass jars being delivered to the houses. That was done in Boston, you know, 20 years ago. But out here in rural Massachusetts, it's just starting again. Yeah. And people are thrilled. And it's a much healthier product, obviously. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I think there's so much to be learned from what's going on right now. And if we can all take that to heart and really appreciate it as a global reset, I think it can be a beautiful thing. As we know, a lot of Incredible lessons learned usually come from a painful experience or some kind of a traumatic shift. And so hopefully we can look at the upside at the end and not focus so much about the pain we're doing right now, but to support each other through that pain. Thank you so much, Pamela. This has been such a pleasure and we could talk for hours and I'd love to have you back sometime. (laughs) There's always, I mean, I can sit on the porch with you and talk for an entire day and still feel like we we haven't covered it all. So (laughs) we'll have to have you back. But I just, I want to honor you and just say how much I appreciate the work that you've done and what you've accomplished. 
You are an amazing woman, I and I feel honored to call you friend. Thank you. The feeling is very much the same, Heidi. It, I was so lucky the day that I walked into that office building in Melmoth and came across you. I'm so I don't remember who it was who connected to us, us to each other, but I'm so grateful. Thank you for everything that you're doing. This is a critical issue too. I wish I had heard this podcast 20 years ago. Well, hopefully we can help someone else and in the process and there's nothing like sharing a little bit of knowledge as my mm-hmm. I always say, you know, knowledge is power but sharing is powerful. You know, it's always been my mantra and I think it's an important way to walk through life. So thank you for joining us today. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I appreciate you, Global Nomads, for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you haven't already, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review and share with your friends. We're a new show and we've got to get the word out so others can learn about critical things like Pamela's journey and other great stories that we are sharing about global nomads, global citizens, expats, digital nomads, etc., etc., anybody who feels they want to be part of the bigger world. Thank you for joining us today, and until next time, bye-bye for now.